Welcome back to the Measured Science Podcast from Lico. I'm your host, Andrew Story. Before we get into today's show, a couple notes. First, Lico's hiring. If you want to come work with me, uh, you can go to lico.com slash about slash employment and see all the great job offerings that are available here at Lico. And, you know, I'm really excited about today's show. I have two two of my favorite people within atomic spectroscopy joining me today. The first is, is Arnie Bankston from uh, Sweden, and he's worked with Lico for a number of years. But a little bit about his background. Of course, he's from Sweden. He grew up on the Baltic coast in a small town called Sundsvall. It's about 250 miles north of Stockholm. He studied math and physics at the University of Uppsala from 1970 to 1979, uh, and then got his PhD in atomic physics, focusing on laser spectroscopy in ion beams. And after that, he went to Heidelberg, Germany, and had a postdoc before taking a job at the Swedish Institute for Metals Research. And that's undergone a number of different changes. Today, it's called uh, Swaria there in Stockholm. He's married, has two grown daughters, one of whom lives here in the United States in Palm Springs. And one one really fun uh, point is that uh, you'll notice Arnie's English is spectacular. And the reason for that is that he spent uh, a few years as a high school student, when he was a senior in high school, as an exchange student. They spent a lot of time here actually in Oscada, Michigan as well. So that's that's a really important point about Arnie. Kim and I have known each other for a number of years as well. Kim's worked at LECO for a few decades here. And uh, now we have a, an important connection, which is that we both had the same graduate advisor, Gary Hefia, at Indiana University. And so uh, through the interactions of, of the group, whether it was at conferences or visits to Bloomington, I got to know Kim uh, a number of times over the years before uh, coming up here to LECO. And now we get to work together. Kim got his start in, in atomic spectroscopy, you know, really focusing on ICPs up and up through graduate school. And then when he arrived at LECO, uh, the first project he was put on was to work on the glow discharge uh, spectrometer. And so in developing a, a glow discharge spectrometer here at LECO, he started working closely with Arnie. So there we have it. The, the, a relationship was born here and these two guys have worked together closely ever since. So there's a really great relationship between the two of them that uh, obviously predates and extends well beyond uh, my relationship with either one of them. So that's just kind of a general overview. That's Andrew talking a lot. And hopefully the other the, the other guys will talk here uh, mostly going forward. So welcome, guys. Thank you. And so, you know, I do want to talk about uh, glow discharge stuff a little bit here and then also dive into just the things that make science great touched on this a little bit uh, with each of you, particularly with Kim getting into glow discharge spectroscopy when he came to LECO. But Arnie, how did you get into glow discharge spectroscopy? And Kim, if you have any color to add to that as well. Uh, well, it, it was what you mentioned. After my postdoc in Heidelberg, I got a job at what was Swedish Institute for Metals Research. Um, I had decided when I was in Heidelberg that I was leaving the academic world and applied for jobs in in different places and I got a job there which is a compromise it is a, an industrial research institute so it was you know continue research but more applied they had 
a few months before I arrived, they had taken a decision to run a project on glow discharge optical emission for uh, depth profiling. Uh, one of the uh, colleagues in, in uh, industry at uh, Swedish Steel had picked up this new technology and told the managers of the institute that this is something we should work on. The guy who was my predecessor had just left, so uh, they were looking for somebody who had a leg in both physics and chemistry. Um, so I got the job. That's how it all started. <laughs> I, I started to work on this project. Um, they had some equipment that today would seem rather rudimentary, but it was workable. And so I got started more or less immediately. Now this was uh, beginning of 1982. So I started to work on the problem of quantification because it was my job. <laughs> it was fun too. <laughs> well, it's always good when, uh, when your job's also fun, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in fact, the first, um, I came to work for LECO in um, August of 1990. I met Arnie that same year. It was before Christmas. I don't remember, it was probably November, October. I don't remember specifically, but along with uh, Joel Mitchell at the time and a few other people, we went to Germany, to what was then uh, Lico Germany in uh, München. Let me pronounce it a little differently, Arnie, isn't it München? Gildheim uh, or München? München. München, yeah, München. München of Deutsch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I met Arnie there. And so I've known Arnie now for well over 30 years. But backing up a bit, how I, how did I get into this in the first place? How did I get into Glow Discharge? Um, you mentioned ICP, uh, and that was definitely important in the sense that I, I went through Gary Hefia's group. I had the skills and the desire to work with instrumentation. But after my first job um, out of uh, university, out of uh, after my PhD, was to work for a French optical company that will remain uh, anonymous for the moment. Um, and I worked for them for about three years and they taught me a good deal about optics. And it was really those skills that have taken me into this process because I was brought to LECO to help develop their, uh, their instrumentation and specifically the glow discharge. And so because of that, I moved from being an ICP spectroscopist to a glow discharge spectroscopist, which is really not much different. It's just a different source. I learned a lot from Arnie with regard to the, the physics and like you said, depth profile became an important part of what we tried to accomplish here at LECO. A good deal of our Arnie and I's collaboration has been about how to best both build an instrument to gather the data, but also then how to interrogate the data once you have it to provide a good depth profile. Uh, that has been much of Arnie and I's collaboration. Yeah, and so in that time, is there are there certain developments that have been most exciting that you that you've run into? Well, maybe problems time. that have been solved. <laughs> you, you first, Arnie. Well, uh, of course, I had some <laughs> exciting developments in this field before I met Kim. Uh, actually, the re that's the reason why Lego got interested in me. As I mentioned, I I actually had the task, a project to work on quantification of uh, CDP profiles, and uh, eventually I cracked it. <laughs> and there were some steps along the way. 
I remember when the first time I realized the, say, connection between sputtering rate and recorded intensity, which is a key to how we can quantify uh, depth profiles where you have materials of different composition and different uh, sputtering rates. I was also was fortunate or, or had the privilege to travel and meet some of the, say, great pioneers, particularly Mr. Berneron at uh, another steel-affiliated research institute in France. It was called IRCID at that time. Today they are ArcelorMittal Research. And I also made a, a tour to Japan in 1987. And they also had some pioneers that I got to meet and learn from and discuss with and so forth. Eventually, I developed a, a method to quantify the depth profiles. We even had a, a hacker at that time at the Institute who could put this into a workable software package. When I presented these things at, uh, in papers and international conferences, then one company called Lico, who had gotten into glow discharged by buying a company in Germany, uh, contacted me and got interested in my work. And that's how it started. So I think um, over the years, you know, besides Arnie and I working very closely together to integrate his algorithms into Lico's software, there were some other very interesting events that occurred. Uh, one was when we first tried to run these stainless steels that are, they have a chrome coating on them that basically provides for corrosion resistance. And, and they're very thin. And, uh, and everybody said there was absolutely no, no chance that we would ever be able to get anything out of them because they're only you know, a few nanometers thick, these coatings. But indeed, if you have very samples and your instrument is clean, you do in fact get very, very reproducible uh, results from those very thin layers. And I, I remember the first time I took that data um, to a conference, it was the one in Spain at, at Granada. Uh, I presented the data to to the community there and I was I was actually scoffed at by, by other colleagues saying, there's absolutely no way that I, that I could actually be producing data that was you know a few nanometers thick with these instruments. But the reality is we could reproducibly do that. And it, it also agreed with other uh, more expensive and sophisticated instrumentation to do that. We, we, we agree with those results. So that was one of the most exciting things for me. It brought us, you know, into the realm that now we can actually compete with, you know, with with techniques that are considered, you know, highly sensitive. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the really impressive things about cool discharge overall, and, and certainly that's the contribution of the work over both of your careers is that we are able to do things at a really cost-effective point in terms of chemical instrumentation, be able to do it quickly and easily too. I think that one of the one of the key points here is that it's not just being able to get that really impressive data, but also that you don't have to have an expert user necessarily putting it in place. It slides right up on on the front of our lamp and mm -hmm. is able to be analyzed um, very easily. I, I just think that's a, a great thing about it. Yeah, I think um, the sample. I think the actual clean, clean samples is the most important part of that. Yeah, yeah, clean sample. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Yeah, because you can't get a nanometric uh, measurement if you don't have a nanometric surface to start with. So right. 
So, you know, atomic spectroscopy, as we as we discussed earlier, Arnie had some background in lasers uh, and still works with, with LIBS quite a bit as well. And Kim had worked in ICP and both obviously spent a great deal of your careers working with, GD, with GDS. Um, where do you kind of see GDS fitting in the future landscape of atomic spectroscopy? I do, do see, uh, of course, a continued use for CDP depth profiling extended to more applications, improved performance, automation. I see for bulk analysis in routine labs in industry, a lot of the instruments, both Spark, XRF and so forth today are automated, operated by robots uh, and so forth. There have been some attempts to do that uh, with glow discharge and I think it's, it's coming for routine applications in industrial labs where they have more or less one or just a few types of samples that are run many times every day. I, I think we will see automated systems, some of them probably low cost because in many cases you don't need high performance. But for other applications I see, say, performance, more sophisticated instrumentation. You know, the development of detectors and optics and so forth, really moving forward, computing power and so forth. That's sort of what I see. For, for bulk analysis, uh, glow discharge has a role for, let's say, special applications, special types of materials where other sources have big problems. One of the, say, nice things about this source is that it's relatively unforgiving if you have a complex metallurgical structure that you know can be really troublesome uh, particularly with spark sources uh, in many cases you can do them with glow discharge and uh, i expect that we will see more applications there and to other applications into other fields uh, that's something for you andrew marketing I, I see for instance aerospace industry should be you know a great field for this technique I'm, I'm sure they have lots of applications where uh, this technique would fit in handy yeah certainly I, we've seen a, a lot of aerospace interest particularly some of the larger aerospace companies but i, I also anticipate seeing um, some of the smaller parts providers and those sorts of things getting more and more engaged with glow discharge down the road yeah. here yeah being instrumentally bent, uh, being the, the person that really pays attention to the instrumentation as much as the physics, obviously I have to understand the physics in order to actually do some of that. But I see kind of what Arnie says, reinforce some of those things like detector to G is probably one of the most crucial. You know, we have a problem because we don't have a large footprint with regard to large numbers of, of parts that we buy. So we're kind of at the mercy of what the detector manufacturers decide to do on their own. It's very difficult to actually provide a detector because, I mean, we could sit down and design one today, I think, that would be far superior to anything that's out there. But getting someone to build it is a different story. You know, as, as we get pixels that are smaller in width to get higher resolution and more sensitivity and maybe even the ability to do a little more time gating and things like that. Uh, those have all be very interesting to us. Uh, even some spatial recognition perhaps with regard to inside the, the plasma. But all of those things are kind of 
pie in the sky until the detectors manufacturers decide to catch up with those concepts. It's not something we can just do. So we're kind of at, at the mercy of how fast some of some of the technology goes. Yeah. So certainly those, you know, those are all the ideas that, are, that we kind of talk about again as, as pie in the sky. You know, one of the great things about glow discharge spectroscopy and really science overall is the community that's engaged in these things. And so a lot of the problems that Kim's talking about are, are being worked on in various ways by um, different academics and such around the world. And we, we've seen a lot of advances in glow discharge spectroscopy, not just through the partnership uh, between the two of you and, and, and at LECO, uh, but also through things like the European Working Group and uh, what's, what's now grown out of that into the International Glow Discharge Symposium that's coming up in April. If you would like to attend, by the way, it's available virtually as well as in person in Oviedo, Spain. But I know Arnie's been intimately involved in, in that European working group uh, over the years and, and Kim to some extent as well. Can you guys talk maybe a little bit about that organization and the community that, that's evolved around it? It started in 1992. There was a meeting in Paris organized by a network or a group, a French group that existed at that time. It was called GAMS, G-A-M-S. And the uh, translation from French is the group for advancing spectroscopic methods. They, of course, had working groups on ICP and, and other stuff. But uh, at that time, largely because of the work at this institute, IRCID, glow discharge spectroscopy was, let's say, more common in France than in most other countries in the world, I would say. And, and they had already a, a good network of users and scientists and so on. And uh, at this meeting in Paris, we decided to form a European network, very informal, no, uh, say, fees or anything. And uh, I was elected the first chairman. At that time, I, <laughs> it was a defining moment for me too. I realized that I had done something <laughs> that was appreciated in this community. So uh, they wanted me to lead it. It has grown over the years. We, we did manage within this group to organize a few projects involving uh, young scientists uh, funded by the European community. And that kept us going. And we organized meetings often in conjunction with other conferences where you would expect spectroscopists to go. Now, since several years under the leadership of Dr. Pete Robinson, uh, who is a GDMS expert uh, from the UK, uh, he has done a great job in organizing international symposia and uh, thereby extending this network. So in the last few meetings we've had, we've had uh, not just Europeans, Kim has been there, Americans, Japanese, Chinese, uh, Russians, uh, and so forth. So, unfortunately, due to the pandemic, we've had to postpone the upcoming meeting two years. But uh, at least as development of lifting restrictions in Europe looks currently, I'm pretty sure that we can organize the meeting in beginning of April in Spain. At least quite a few Europeans will attend in person. 
so this is nice. I mean, it, it, we have even much thanks to sponsorship from Leco and other companies also been able to raise some funds to, uh, for instance, give young scientists a possibility to uh, visit conferences and and so forth. So we just give them some money because they've done a good thing. <laughs> I know one, no name mentioned, who bought a fancy espresso machine for his money. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll keep the, uh, the the name anonymous there in order to protect the guilty. But uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> through out my time in 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 science overall I, I think it's been great to get to meet arnie on, on a routine basis obviously mm -hmm. kim and i have had the, the privilege of working together here as well but this community kind of evolves and and it's obviously present at the go discharge meeting but also at, at other at other conferences around the world are there things that you've you've seen over the years that have kind of spurred a new innovation of sorts um, obviously there's a lot of different science going on outside of glow discharge spectroscopy uh, that is uh, perhaps interesting as well. Outside? <laughs> that, uh, as <laughs> was mentioned before, I I, uh, I work with LIBS, laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy, and that, well, it isn't exactly a newer field, <laughs> glow discharge optical emission. No, it isn't. <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, the first LIBS experiments were carried out with ruby lasers shortly after the invention of of, of the laser in, in the early 60s, but but it has really taken off uh, lately and that that's it, it's a different beast. I mean you it, it's a source that you can you can apply from a distance without sample preparation. It lends itself very well to uh, online applications of all kinds of materials. so it, it's it's also a really exciting field to be involved in, but it, mm -hmm. it's different. Uh, sometimes uh, there's a tendency for us, I'd say, scientists to, to sort of compete, try to pit different techniques head to head, say, now mine is better because and so forth, but that's kind of silly. There are things you can do with uh, glow discharge that you will never ever be able to do with LIBS and vice versa. But uh, there have certainly been some quite interesting breakthroughs for LIBS. There I should mention <laughs> something that is, uh, you know, really exciting. You've been able to put LIBS instruments on Mars and analyze minerals on the surface of Mars. Now that would be difficult to do with a glow discharge, I think. Yes, it would be. A yeah. vacuum wouldn't be so hard. You know, a vacuum would be relatively easy, by comparison. When I think of the overall field of glow discharge, I also, because of my experience with uh, ICPA, I always kind of go back and think how that field has progressed. And it went from being mostly optical emission uh, in the 70s and 80s, and then moved into mass spectroscopy pretty much in the late 80s. And, and now, you know, mass spectroscopy is far the larger percentage of the ICP market uh, compared to optical emission, I believe, today. And you would think that a similar trend would occur with low discharge. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's a lot easier to uh, put um, a mass spectrometer onto a an atmospheric pressure source like ICP than it is to literally, believe it or not, you'd think it would be easier because we're already down in vacuum or close to it with low discharge, but that actually makes it more difficult. 
in a way. You don't have to do as much pumping, perhaps, as you do with an ICP, but you're perturbing your plasma far more if you aren't careful, because it's a, a much less robust source, if you will. So I think that's one of the reasons we haven't seen a huge push towards that, although obviously there is some ICP aspect out there, and it's it's quite good for what it does, but it's, it isn't at the same level as optical emission with regard to, for example, depth profile. For Virgo discharge, for sure that's something that we've we've seen in the market. And I think some of that also has to do with the sizes of the respective markets and how the cost curves get bent accordingly. So, you know, obviously over the years, you've had a lot of opportunities for collaboration, a lot of different ways you've worked with different people in in the field. But of course, there's there's always stories that emerge from that. Do you have any really good ones? Names can be changed to protect the guilty here, but uh, feel free to, to, to share something fun. I have um, one <laughs> sort of uh, a bit amusing story. It involves one now sadly deceased colleague, uh, Richard Paling from Australia. He uh, worked uh, in a similar way that I have worked with Lico. He was a consultant and worked for a competitor. Uh, and the first time I ever heard about him or from him, he wrote me a letter which sort of started more or less like this. Dear Dr. Bengtsson, I think you're wrong. Uh, the thing was that he had read papers from me where I described how what we call the emission yield or, or the intensity per sputtered atom is affected by uh, voltage and current, and not electrical perfect. parameters of the plasma. And he had developed a model that only was uh, on the pressure in the source and, and he was convinced that the pressure was the only parameter that mattered for the this uh, concept of emission yield. He even wrote a paper to that effect. And so he wrote to me, as from one scientist to another, where you disagree, I think you're wrong. <laughs> and this was the beginning of, of the friendship, you can say. He actually came to my lab. We did some experiments together without you know, being too cocky, I can say they went my way. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then he continued to do more research and he wrote another paper which essentially contradicted his first. It, it was a very thorough investigation, lots of experiments. He did find a little bit of influence from the pressure, but essentially it, it uh, confirmed my results. And I remember I met him at one of these ISO meetings uh, after he had published that paper and I said, in principle, you could write to the magazine for the first paper, what do you call it, a, a correction or something and say, paper so-and-so is wrong. And he admitted, yeah, I could do that, <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> he uh, <it> never did. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, I mean, he, he was a, a good person and a, a scientist and in the best sense of the word. He, he had curiosity, he, uh, he had ideas and uh, he liked to bang heads with colleagues and uh, discuss things. So it, it was a sad thing. He died in a mountaineering accident now several years ago, but uh, in, the, in this European group, we have a, is a prize named after him, the Paling Prize. 
uh, my my impression of that whole thing because you know I was kind of involved in it too is that if you if you only have a hammer everything else is a nail. The whole point was that the instrumentation that he was utilizing did not have the capability of controlling the voltage and the current inside the plasma. Only had the ability to control the pressure, and therefore it must be pressure that's important because that's all I can control effectively. And I think that has a lot to do with the direction that he chose to go. Not that he was completely wrong either, as you said. There is some pressure effects, but the predominant ones we've shown over and over again are from the voltage and the current plasma. And certainly, the pressure can be used to adjust the current and the voltage, uh, or at least the. That's the only thing that can of... be used actually to do right. that. It's, so they're all related. They're all related. It, so. does, it does affect it in that way, you know, QED. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, I guess the the only other thing that I like to ask this this kind of fun question at, at the end of every one of these podcasts, um, and that's what's the most interesting sample you've ever worked with? Um, is there something that really kind of stands out to you as uh, an aha moment or something that just was a, a joy as part of a project? Kim, you go first. I have to think hard. Okay. Well, I already mentioned one of them, and that was the thin chromide chrome uh, layers on top of stainless steel for corrosion resistance. But let me go with a different one because I think that in the long run, those have been more interesting to me, and that is hard drives in general. And not a specific sample per se, but a more of a sample type. We have shown consistently that we can get very, very good and reproducible results on on computer hard drives. And the one thing I think is really interesting about that, at least for me, is that it's almost a fingerprint. You can not only tell the manufacturer that made the hard drive, you can tell the batch it came from if you really know what you're doing. It's they're they're so completely I wouldn't say completely different because they all have similar features to them, but the the way the layers stack up and the thickness of them and everything about them is 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 a fingerprint of the particular manufacturing process. And it's so it's it's very I don't know a lot about the physics behind it. I know some, but it's very interesting to see and watch the, the manufacturers make these various layers. Obviously, there's a lot less of that now with solid state. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the finest uh, deposition processes in the world. So, you know, being yeah. able to discern those is is really an amazing thing. Something comes to to mind, which is uh, related to the ability that Kim told us about uh, earlier that you could see really thin layers. This is many years ago within the European project. A German group at the university had manufactured a sample with alternating chromium and nickel layers, mm -hmm. extremely thin, just a few nanometers, each one of them. I think there were 20 layers or something like that. Uh, the guy who had had them manufactured he had well a type of instrument that was rather odd. I can, or it was sophisticated. I I cannot recall exactly what it was called now, but it was a much more expensive and complicated instrument than a glow discharge optical emission instrument. And said, "Can I run it? Get me one of those samples. I run it on our glow discharge." And I did, and we resolved all of those layers. And I remember he saw our results and said, I mean, this was done, the actual sputtering time, a few seconds. And, and he saw the, the data and he said, I'll throw my instrument out the window, 
drop it in the river outside. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember that sample, Arnie, and I also remember the gentleman. It was sput it was sputtered neutral mass spectroscopy. Yes, that's right. And um, and um, I can't remember his name right now. He, Jet, he wrote a, he wrote a book something. on it, actually. Yeah. It's very it's a very good book yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the whole technique. But anyway, um, he, I, he, I had the same discussion with him. Um, it was actually in Japan at uh, the Go Discharge meeting we had there in, I believe it was in the early 2000s, like 2001, 2002, somewhere in there. It might have been right before 2000. I don't remember now. But I had the same discussion with him, and he was just like, I can't believe you guys could, in a, in a minute or so, do something that takes me hours to accomplish, and you're using an instrument that's like a tenth of the cost of mine. Kind well, of do you guys have any... <laughs> It is one of these things that, you know, very frequently when somebody is not familiar with the technique, they it does kind of pop out to them that, wow, that you could do that with Glow Discharge. I, I think that I see that fairly routinely with customers. So um, certainly when you have um, scientists who have been working with a particular sample and, a partic and other techniques for a long time, it is sometimes even more shocking to them when they see a technique like this that that can really move their their science forward. Um, do you guys have any closing remarks before we before we kind of wrap things up here today, um, any any big news or uh, anything you'd like to let everybody know about? There's one new field actually that we haven't talked about. That's uh, glow discharge at atmospheric pressure uh, for liquids, uh, sometimes called solution cathode glow discharge. It hasn't really taken off yet, at least not commercially. But I think you should. Keep your eyes open because this is another technique that, like LIBS, lends itself well to online applications. It will not be the most sensitive technique and so forth, but I think it has a lot of potential. Yeah, I, I had the opportunity to work a little bit with that source when I was in graduate school as well. So it's, it's certainly a, a, an interesting thing for the future. Well, I want to say thank you guys very much for joining me today. Great seeing you a few weeks ago, Arnie, and, and it was great talking to you again this morning. Uh, Kim, always a pleasure to see you uh, here at LECO, and uh, I'll talk to you uh, later today. If uh, if you guys have any additional questions or comments, or if people have questions about glow discharge spectroscopy, feel free to reach out. You know, this is a, a field that we're all very passionate about, and uh, you can reach me at Andrew underscore story at LECO.com. This has been another great podcast of Measured Science, uh, where we talk about a lot of the ongoings and science around LECO products or around LECO overall. But if you have any additional ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to us and we'll be happy to try to incorporate a new podcast of interests to our listeners. Thank you very much and have a great day.